thank you for coming um, to our Choosing Wisely series as part of our Issues in Geriatric Health monthly lecture series. Um, we are funded by a HRSA grant. Our program is called the Advancing Competency for Geriatric Care in Rural Northern New England, ACGC for short. My name is Kelly Kirkpatrick, and I'm one of the Associate Project Directors for the grant project. Our funding allows us to offer these types of programs to you at no charge. Our work is to enhance the care of older adults by offering comprehensive education programs targeted to nursing staff, emphasizing evidence-based best practices in geriatric care. In order to receive educational credit for this program, please sign in. Um, make sure you sign the attendance sheet at your site. Um, and make sure your handwriting is legible so that credit can be awarded. Your contact hour will be posted to an online transcript within one month. Um, the continuing education site here at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. There's an instruction sheet available to you on how to access your online transcript. Um, and you must attend 80% of the program to receive credit. Neither our speakers nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. Um, any product, service, or company being discussed or displayed in conjunction with this activity does not imply that there's a real or implied endorsement by the American Nurses Credentialing Center or Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. Um, we also ask that you fill out an evaluation form and a data form, which we'll need to uh, get back from you. In order for us to continue to receive funding for a grant, we need to provide them with this information. And so we appreciate taking the time for you to fill it out. If you're a remote at a remote site, um, please turn in your forms to your site liaison at the end of the session. Also, if you're at a remote site, if you could please make sure you're on mute unless you'd like to ask a question. Um, and if you have a cell phone, if you could please silence it now. And um, our presentation today is part of the ABIM and American Geriatric Society recommendations of choosing wisely series about feeding tubes in patients with advanced dementia. Our speaker today is Joanne Sandberg Cook. She has a master's in nursing from Simmons College. She started her career in rheumatology and orthopedics in Boston, and then moved to Vermont, where she started her career in geriatrics uh, with the VA in white rib rejection. In 1995, she began working um, at Kendall at Hanover as part of the DHMC clinic there for a geriatric population. Um, and she has co-edited co four editions, and now working on the fifth of a primary care textbook, has mentored uh, many geriatric nurse practitioner students and spoken often about geriatric and palliative care. Please welcome Joanne. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for coming today. Um, this is the first uh, of the uh, Choosing Wisely directives from the uh, uh, a collaboration between the American Geriatric Society and the um, Association of Internal Medicine, um, which has recommended five, now 10, as of very recently. Um, recommendations uh, that, that have sh shown to provide no benefit to or cause harm to geriatric patients. Number one uh, we're going to be talking about today, um, and that is um, the evidence against using uh, percutaneous feeding tubes in advanced dementia. Um, at the end of this presentation, participants will discuss the evidence base that supports this recommendation discuss nutritional goals of patients with advanced dementia, discuss current tube feeding practices in the United States, 
uh, name three reasons why tube feeding may be contraindicated, and understand the alternatives to tube feeding in patients with advanced dementia. So the official statement reads as follows. Don't recommend percutaneous feeding tubes in patients with advanced dementia. Instead, offer oral assisted feeding. The rationale for this uh, indicates, and again, the studies are not um, wonderful. They're, they're primarily observational studies. They are not double-blinded. As you can imagine, studying this extremely vulnerable group of people would be um, ethically challenging. However, the observational studies um, that have been reported really now since about 1999 have indicated that hand feeding is at least as good as tube feeding when measuring uh, outcomes of death, aspiration pneumonia, functional status, and patient comfort. Um, the rationale against uh, uh, or in favor of the recommendation would be that tube feeding is consistently associated with increased agitation, increased use of physical and chemical restraints, and worsening pressure ulcers. Currently in the United States, one-third of demented nursing home patients have a, a feeding tube. <clears throat> this is found more commonly in nursing homes without mid-level pro providers, not that I'm biased, um, in for-profit nursing homes, in larger nursing homes, in nursing homes without dedicated dementia care units, and most feeding tubes are actually placed while patients are hospitalized for an acute illness, um, often without the full understanding of families um, about the burdens and outcomes of this kind of treatment. Um, Tube feeding is defined um, as alternative administration of food and fluids and medications for folks who are unable to swallow. And in fact, it can provide 100% of nutritional needs. Um, initially, uh, PEG tubes were designed for severely disabled and or premature infants. And in fact, um, premature infants are often supplementally fed um, through a G-tube. Um, until they've grown enough to be discharged from the hospital. The first one done percutaneously um, was in 1979, and this was, then became immediately recognized as helpful for other people not able to eat, including people who've had strokes, trauma, particularly head trauma, cancer, especially of the head and neck, Parkinson's disease, and the neurodegenerative diseases such as um, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. So the indications for a feeding tube would be an inability to swallow due to, what, to the things that we were just talking about, cancer, ALS, stroke, premature infants, head and neck trauma. And of course, temporary use of these feeding tubes can provide a tremendous amount of benefit, providing that you are very specific about which group you're using it for. Uh, it's important to understand that the feeding tube, mark, tube market is also a very lucrative market. It's worth about $1.64 billion annually. Medicare pays doctors a fair amount of money to place the tube, and hospitals, again, a fair amount of money um, for the procedure itself. The market then expands to include pumps, 
dressing supplies, uh, food, uh, placement techniques, uh, d design uh, research, um, and again, this is what adds to that $1.64 million amount. Then nursing homes can actually bill uh, the feeding of patients with feeding tubes as a skilled service to Medicare, which is some more dollars. And, um, and it can save money by reducing the amount of staff needed to actually feed people three meals a day. So late life anorexia is normal. Um, the body is slowing down. Um, it does not require as many calories to sustain itself. The process of digestion slows down. And a voluntary reduction in food and fluid is completely normal. Uh, weight loss is inevitable. And this is a problem if the patient is in a nursing home. Because nursing homes, um, uh, uh, nursing home regulators have uh, made weight loss a quality measure. And so when, they're, when a patient is losing weight, that nursing home comes under the scrutiny of regulators pretty carefully. This may be an impetus for tube placement. Um, also, staff and often family perceive that um, starving is a cause of death in these people. And therefore, they want to do um, everything that they can, believing that this starvation is uncomfortable. Um, and so often families are, uh, this is misrepresented to families as a, as a, as a huge and uncomfortable issue. Swallowing difficulty is very common in advanced dementia. Um, people simply don't recognize that what is in their mouth is food. The food becomes pocketed. Um, swallowing becomes difficult to coordinate, forming that bolus of food and getting back to the throat to actually, to actually maneuver it into a position to swallow becomes very difficult. Coordinating the muscles in the mouth and in the neck basically remembering how to eat. And this results in, as expected, weight loss, malnutrition, dehydration, aspiration pneumonia, and coughing spells. So why not insert the tube? That's the question. Well, for one thing, the outcomes don't, don't bear out the risks associated with the insertion of the tube. There's no decrease in mortality. In fact, mortality may increase with the insertion of the tube. There's no improvement in functional status. There's no decrease in aspiration. There's no evidence that a peg tube feeding prevents skin breakdown. And there's no evidence of sustained weight gain. There are plenty of complications, however. Um, perforation or of, a, of an organ uh, during insertion of the tube is possible. Surgical site infection is not actually uncommon. Um, the leakage of gastric contents around the insertion site is very common. Intolerance of feeding formulas also not uncommon. Electrolyte imbalances and discomfort, which often results in pulling out the tube and hence the need for restraints. Some of the ethical considerations, and this is really just touching on a huge, on a huge topic here. Um, in our culture, food is love. 
food is often the only way that people can communicate with with their loved ones who are so severely demented that they've lost the ability to to communicate, to relate to them on in any other level. This can be an extremely difficult decision for families. They may fear that their loved ones are suffering from hunger and from thirst. Also, traditionally underserved populations um, like African Americans um, are very um, much uh, very much in favor of putting a tube in because they are afraid that they're not getting everything that they possibly could get or that, that they may be, they may, this may be a sign of discrimination in their mind. Um, and it's also mandated by some religious conservatives, including Muslims. Um, and I did read a, a, an actual um, uh, ethical lecture from a, um, a Muslim uh, clergyman um, who actually studied the, the issue of feeding tubes very carefully and determined that, in fact, um, feeding tube was should be placed in, in when, whenever there was any question about it, the tube should be placed. Orthodox Jews um, feel the same way, and many fundamentalist Christians also uh, feel the same way, that, that, um, that while, where there is life, that life needs to be nourished. However, it's my opinion and the opinion of, of leading ethicists that Alzheimer's disease is a, is a terminal illness. In fact, it is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States, and it causes much suffering. So in our opinion, palliative care is appropriate. And the goals of palliative care include comfort, dignity, and quality of life. We know that feeding tubes can be uncomfortable. Patients may try and pull them out, and restraints may be needed. We know that quality of life is different for each of us, but tube feeding is very isolating. There is no pleasurable taste or texture, and the family is often not involved. And we know that dignity is also affected by the medicalization of the room that the patient is living in, the pumps, the tubing, um, and more complications such as infection requiring additional care and diarrhea. So what's the alternative? The alternative is a dignified hand feeding and a feeding care plan. We refer to this as comfort feeding, based on an article uh, written some three years ago, published in the American Ger Geriatric Society um, Journal. Comfort feeding allows that eating is a pleasurable activity, that mealtime is an event of importance, that pleasant, a pleasant environment, a low noise environment, and good smells stimulate the appetite. Proper staff education and training is required. Adequate fluids and altered consistency make this more successful. And food should only be offered for only as long as the patient indicates an interest. And patients, even patients with very late stage dementia, will indicate when they have had enough, even if it's after just a few spoonfuls. 
So as a nurse, it's important first to identify and correct those reversible causes for people not eating, including dental issues, mouth sores, dry mouth, constipation, depression, medication side effects, difficulty managing utensils and cups. Um, one story I have of a lady here in the hospital, actually, who had come from, from Kendall, um, was in the hospital, don't remember what her issue was, but she wasn't drinking anything. She wasn't, and everyone kept saying, oh, Mrs. Smith, you have to drink more. There's, you know, you have a whole, you have a nice big cup of water right there, you should drink that. Turned out that Mrs. Smith could, that the water pitcher is one of those quart-sized water pitchers. She could not lift it to bring it to her mouth. Therefore, even though she was thirsty, she couldn't drink. So it's, again, paying attention to those small issues um, that makes a huge difference. It's important for nurses to understand the patient's previously expressed wishes. So if an advanced directive exists, please pull it out and read it, and even read it out loud to the family, if that's what it takes. Talk with family members. Sometimes, even though folks have not filled out an advanced directive, they have said, oh, I would never want to live like that to their family. Um, acknowledge religious beliefs and cultural expectations, family traditions, as well as the individual preference. And anticipate future feeding problems. So that a patient, a patient who, who is really only just starting down this path, um, an early discussion is in order. Um, um, the patient may still be eating pretty well or even maybe feeding themselves, although beginning to slow down. That's the time to have the discussion with the family. Uh, remembering that most tubes are inserted, again, in the hospital, 80%, during an acute illness where the prognosis is unclear. So ongoing discussion with caregivers and family is up to all of us. Individual goals of care must be written down at, or at the very least understood. The prognosis of the patient really must be understood. Is this a patient that you think will die within the next six months? Talk to the family about that. Talk about palliative care. Involve palliative medicine if that's available to you. Talk about the burdens of tube feeding, um, what that means to patients. Writing comfort feeding as a care order indicates an understanding of patient and family and of the patient and family's care goals. So an actual order, like a DNR order, that says comfort feeding only, um, will will first of all indicate that you have an understanding of that patient and family's goals, and and that you have a an individualized feeding care plan in place. Um, the order encourages ongoing discussions with family and caregivers and documents the discussion which in which the family has refused a feeding tube and then realizes the goal of providing nutrition with a minimum with a minimum of patient distress short and sweet <laughs> thank you There's some references at the end of the slides. 
So Joanne, when I went to the um, American Society of Bioethics and Humanities um, annual conference this last fall, there were quite a few topics about um, the issues of oral feeding in advanced dementia and how far to push that. And there was a lot of sort of cutting edge commentary about family members who were requesting don't be quite so vigorous, don't provide at all, stop food and fluids, um, and how do you sort of address that next step to sort of the inevitability of the person? We've all seen either family members or staff who are very, you might say, good or pushy at the comfort feeding. Right. So how do you address that? Well, first of all, if you're pushing it, it's no longer comfort feeding. So that, that would be one way to, to think about that. Comfort feeding is really placing the food uh, that, that is, has been determined by a team, the dietitian, the physician, and so forth, as the appropriate consistency food for that patient uh, near the mouth and offering. And if that mouth doesn't open, then you don't push it. You don't, you don't squirt water in with a syringe. You don't, you, you know, you, you simply, you're simply allowing the patient to decide. Secondly, interesting enough, this, this, you know, when I came in here today, um, there were only five um, things that, that patients and families should question in the Choosing Wisely. And I went online this morning and actually found five more. They oh. just published them. And one of them is um, avoid using prescription appetite stimulants or high calorie supplements for the treatment of anorexia or cachexia in older adults. Instead, optimize social supports, provide feeding assistance, and clarify patient goals and expectations. So we're getting to the point where even prescribing things like Ensure or Boost for patients is not considered actually ethically appropriate. Now, it becomes a problematic, and, and as you probably can guess at Kendall, lots of family members kept saying to us, you have to stop, you know, she doesn't want this. Mm -hmm. She has said in her advanced directives, don't even feed me. I don't want to be hand-fed by somebody else. And many folks at Kendall have that written in their advanced directives. The problem is the regulatory bodies. So that if, um, if the patient is in the hospital um, or at home, the family can decide to just give the, the, the patient small amounts of fluid just to wet their mouth or provide pleasurable taste or texture. But in a nursing home, we can't not feed people. It's not, it's considered elder abuse. Mm -hmm. So and until the regulators catch up with where the population is, it's going to be a struggle. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that this is being talked about at, at these mm -hmm. kinds of meetings because um, the population as is as usual. The public is ahead of us on this issue. Mm -hmm. So even if you have advanced directives, you, you are obligated to provide if you're in a in a nursing home that's regulated by the federal government, oh. yeah, you're, 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 here's what you're required to provide. You're required to provide. You're required to offer three meals a day. The patient can refuse. The question then becomes, in advanced dementia, can the family refuse as the surrogate decision maker? And this is the topic that's become quite hot in ethical discussions. Can the family, the family can decide to refuse medications. So the question becomes, can the family decide to refuse 
on behalf as the surrogate decision maker for that person. Because in the cases that were discussed at this conference, this ethics conference I was at, so the person, the patient was so um, cognitively disabled that they were not able to communicate their desires for food. And so if right. you place something in their mouth, they had the physical capacity to take the bolus of food and swallow it and whatever. Yeah. Um, but the patient had had many conversations with their family members about that's exactly the point they don't want to get at. Want, if right. they have lost their sort of personhood in however they define that, don't force feed me is basically that. And right. It's not that you're doing it against an unwilling, seemingly unwilling person, but it goes contrary to all of to what their... they've said previously. Right. And right. that's the struggle. Yes, that is the struggle. And 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 I'm and I'm going to get this wrong because the the the, the ethicists, the ethical positions on this are very complicated. Right. But on on one end, there is respecting the decision of the of the patient uh, 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 as they were and on the other hand it's respecting the decision of the patient as they are and and as they are now does that mean that they are any less of a human being now in an advanced demented state than they were in a competent state it's a very difficult decision so when I work complete opposite end of the spectrum here. I work at premature infants. So yes, yeah, they all get feeding tubes, right? Very, my, my, you know, my, my knowledge about this particular um, um, area is, is, is really quite limited, but I'd yeah. like to tag on to something that Peggy just said. Just from my own knowledge, when you have a person in an advanced state of dementia, do they have, I mean, can do they have the cognitive ability to realize that they're hungry and that if food were placed in front of them, they would eat? Or at least accept, you know, help. Or because I hear sometimes that they're they're refusing because they're stubborn. So I'm trying to figure out: do they really? Do they under? Do they have the capability to to to, to sense that sensation of hunger and and want to eat? Or 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 do some people just refuse because they just don't have the ability to? I, I don't know. I'm just, this is just a knowledge question for you me. know I mean again do we know the answer to that question absolutely we don't but we do know some things do happen physiologically we know that we know that people burn very very much fewer calories when when they're when they're in an advanced demented state um, um, we know that 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 their need for uh, calories uh, seems seems to diminish it, it also we know that appetites diminish as people get older and sicker so, um, so if we offer food to someone in that condition and they don't wish to have any, is there any way to tell like they're because because they they're truly not hungry mm -hmm. versus they don't have the cognitive ability to really realize that they want something to eat? I, I, you know what I mean? So, well, I mean, think about the sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean. Hunger, the you know the need for food yeah. is right right down there, right. close mm -hmm. to the bottom. Uh, you know, much much lower than the higher cognitive skills are. So, so my our own sense here is that if people are interested in eating, they even will. in an advanced demented demented state, they, they will they will eat. Uh, maybe not enough to keep them from right. losing weight, um, but but certainly some something, yeah. The other piece that plays into that is a the physiologic ability to actually manipulate the food, which certainly deteriorates with neurological decline. Right. But the other piece is the concept of how do you 
get beyond the person's refusal. So if you've gotten past the, is it palatable, is the food appetizing, which a lot of the way that we prepare pureed foods and whatever is pretty disgusting. Right. So, you know, if you've gotten past that and you've tried to do your most, you know, nicest food concept in terms of smell and taste and whatever, and then if they're behaviorally refusing, that's certainly in acute care where I see the medications, the you know, psych antipsychotic medications used to sedate the patient, or the restraints to keep them from batting away the people when they're trying to stop. You know, so when somebody is behaviorally saying no, which I say that's what they're doing, right? I think it would be cruel and inhumane to push past that. I agree. Whether they have the conceptual knowledge right. at the larger sense that we would have right. in our perfect thinking minds, that we say, I have informed consent that I want the food or I have informed consent that I don't. They don't have the capability to do that. But the behavioral refusal then requires so many horrible things to get past that, that I would think it's practically and humanely a bad idea. It's practically abusive in, yes. in, in my humble opinion. Mm -hmm. um, to, to do that. Um, now, however, I think it helps caregivers to understand, and this is an understanding, of kind of a cultural shift understanding, that dementia is a terminal illness, like cancer is a terminal illness. Um, and, if you, and if you believe that, uh, you know, folks who are 92 years old and, and have a terminal illness should be allowed uh, only comfort measures, then you wouldn't push through that kind of behavioral stuff. You would really, um, you really would only feed people as they indicated a desire for, for food or for fluid, uh, a little, a little teaspoon of water or an ice chip. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I do have a case study. We can go, we can review oh, that right. if if you'd like to if you'd like to if you'd like to. Um, see if I can get that here, get it on the slides here. Um, I don't think I'm going to be able to get it on the slides, but I can read it to you. Um, Mrs. P is a 92-year-old nursing home resident with advanced dementia. Um, she's nonverbal, bed-bound, and cannot sit up without assistance. She's having increased difficulty with eating. She pockets her food and occasionally chokes. Um, the speech therapist has assessed her, and food textures have been modified, yet she continues to have problems and is losing weight. So what are the risks that you can identify with Mrs. P? While you're doing that, I'll try and find Mrs. P on my computer here. The risks which way? What are her, the risks to her of not eating? or being forced to eat? Well, it seems like the risk of not eating would be the de potentially dehydration, which would be a much more severe issue as well as starvation. Certainly poor nutrition leads to potential for skin breakdown and other immobility-related issues just get worse when you have poor nutrition. And all of those are things we hate to see in our elders. Um, Aspiration pneumonia mm -hmm. is another risk um, for her. And what happens, of course, 
is that um, Mrs. P develops a wet cough, a fever, and mild respiratory distress. She's living in a nursing home, and so therefore she is then taken to the hospital, um, transferred to the hospital emergency room, where aspiration pneumonia is diagnosed, and she is started on antibiotics. Presumably all in discussion with her family, because of course you you wouldn't you wouldn't which is interesting you wouldn't start her on antibiotics without the family's permission. I don't think, would you? One would hope not, but I know. <laughs> the attending physicians are concerned about her dysphagia and have recommended a PEG tube to help her get stronger and recover more quickly while reducing the risk of recurrent aspiration. What's wrong with the physician's comment? Well, because a PEG tube doesn't reduce the risk of recurrent aspiration. There you go. It seems logical that it, it seems would. seems logical that it would, but it doesn't, in fact. Yeah. In fact, because there's still a, a patent uh, pathway between the stomach and the mouth, you can still aspirate gastric contents, even if they're being um, delivered in the non-traditional way. Um, how would you advise, how would you talk to Mrs. P's family? Now they have to make a decision here and they're being told that she's malnourished and dehydrated and she's aspirated because she's unable to swallow um, and that a tube will help all of these things. As nurses, how, how can we, how do we advise the family members? First of all, do we? That's the first question. To think about anyway. Well, I think the family needs to understand the risks and benefits of the pros and cons of you know placing a tube versus not having a tube. And I think family members are so concerned about what the patient will feel like if they don't eat because we, you know, miss we. a meal and we're convinced we're gonna start. <laughs> Absolutely. Back, you know? That's and right. so we, we know that sensation. I think there's a lot of fear. They don't want their loved one to suffer. I mean, mm -hmm. I think sometimes by withholding food people think that they are suffering. And as you mentioned earlier on, food is such a source of comfort and a way of saying, you know, sharing your, your, your feelings about a particular person. So it seems cruel, I think, for the typical family or person to think that they wouldn't give them food if they could. Because, you know, so I, I think even as you addressed in the very beginning about the, the, the very natural progression of weight loss, and um, decreased appetite. Now, you know, I think that's important for families to hear uh, so that they can make those kinds of informed decisions. And, um, you know, I remember when um, Arabaya was talking with some family members about the fact that they really, they don't really have that sensation of, of hunger. I mean, after, you know, and so I think that's important for, for people to know that they're not going to suffer, they're not going to feel badly uh, if you don't provide them food. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think that you know, sort of contrasting our, our normal, healthy lives, um, active, moving from job to job and family and work, and and you know, you get hungry. You're burning a lot of calories in the course of a day, and it doesn't feel good to not to miss that meal. And so you naturally translate that feeling to your loved one, but. The best of our understanding indicates that there is really not, there is no suffering associated here. 
people are not suffering hunger. They're not, they don't feel thirsty. The mouth may feel a little dry, and we have ways of addressing that. But there isn't the actual sensation of thirst. And in fact, in healthy, playing tennis, climbing mountain seniors, mm -hmm. um, the thirst uh, sensation diminishes. So they have, they don't have a lot of. Um, the, me the thirst message is just doesn't don't get through um, to uh, normal, active seniors. So imagine um, bed-bound 92-year-olds with advanced dementia, which which think advanced brain damage when you think advanced dementia, because that's basically what it is. When you ask about <clears throat> what the nurse's role is, I, I find one thing that works well for me is to start by saying, don't think of the family like, um, what questions do you have about what you've learned about the feeding tube option? Yeah. And then what's your understanding of the risks and benefits? And then you can help fill in the gaps rather than trying to start a conversation of, here are my concerns about your decision. You know I, what I, mean? I think that's a wonderful way to do it. Um, I think, and that's true of any procedure that, mm -hmm. that is recommended to any patient. I mean, I think our job as nurses is to really sort of clarify, answer questions, mm -hmm. and so forth. I think it's hard for the nurse if even one physician is heartily recommending it. And I think, I mean, we had this conversation earlier that I think the word is getting out that the peg tube feeding at the end of life is doesn't make sense, particularly in people with dementia. But I think that um, a lot of physicians are still not knowledgeable about that. And so they have the same bias that the family members may have about not feeding. And they do. And often, and unfortunately not recently, but not all that uh, long ago, um, you know, physicians, and I think particularly young and less experienced physicians, um, would, would say to family members, you don't want your mother to starve to death. Mm -hmm. That's a very difficult way to die. And in fact, you know, all, all of our observations in the studies that we've done, palliative medicine has done, indicated that it's not an uncomfortable mm -hmm. way to die. That, that people are very comfortable. If allowed, again, if the mouth is kept moist, and if their other comfort uh, needs are are met, um, I think that one of the the most um, uh, moving moments that I saw in hospital with a patient um, with advanced dementia who had gone on to have very large stroke was admitted to the hospital, um, and the family was divided. There were a lot of children. There were like five or six children, and they were divided as to what to do. And um, the neurologist sat down at this family meeting with all five children and those of us that had come over from Kendall and so forth and read out loud the standard wording on an advanced directive. Mm -hmm. And that swayed the family members that were leaning towards more aggressive care or more life-sustaining care as they considered it. Um, uh, it, it, it swayed them away from that and into comfort or palliative care. It was a very, very impressive thing to do. And, it, and he didn't do anything except read what was written on that page. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was a lesson for me in that one. And I think the changes in New Hampshire with the advanced directive law that as of January, this past January, it's no longer obligatory that the person has to do the checkbox of I specifically do not want medically right, right, food and sign it or initial it right. or whatever they had to do. Yeah, right. that yeah. had that was yeah. specially a, a separate box that you had to check 
in New Hampshire in order to have the clear and convincing evidence or whatever it was standard. Yeah. Yeah. And now that's all lumped into all the other life-sustaining treatment because yeah. that was a very difficult conversation about, well, I already said I didn't want this. Why are you asking me about this? It must be something very special yeah. that you have to ask me that. And I just think it created more of a burden for the family members who had a hard time understanding all the medical issues they had to deal with. So I do think in New Hampshire, with the new law saying you don't have to have a separate conversation, that can be part of the whole life-sustaining therapy conversation. Right. Is better. And of course, you know, placing a peg tube and feeding people is absolutely a medical a treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not eating the way right. we just had lunch. It's a medical treatment. And I think families and even physicians, to some extent, don't get the picture of some of the negative consequences that you mentioned about tube feeding. Because I can see how if you were to say to someone, well, it's a pretty straightforward procedure, and then the person will receive nutrition, why would you say no? Why would you say no? When you think about the the discomfort or the very common diarrhea that then causes their skin issues and new needs for care, for bedside care, just I feel like they don't often get that whole picture that sometimes tube feeding can be very uncomfortable. Right, right. And I think even, and again, you know, we we all gain some experience as we get older and older, but I think the young doctors really haven't seen enough, haven't seen um, six months out or, or, or a year out of what that looks like mm-hmm. or what, what it can, the complications that can occur. Right. So, do we have any, I don't know if we still have people out there. If we do, I'm happy. I guess I can take questions. You have to unmute their. I have to unmute them. You do. They would. They do. They, would, they have to unmute. Okay. So if you have any questions from. Thank you very much. Thanks. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Thanks for coming. This is kind of the other end of the syndrome. It, it is. It is. But you know what? There's such a strong nutrition history of Alzheimer's in my family. You want to get it? Well, and it also applies to some of your neurologically devastated mm-hmm. infants. Yeah. That you can query the same yeah. questions yeah. apply. We actually had an ethics case recently that was the other side where this person was in the ICU and um, and the person had this diagnosis of dementia. And so this very well-meaning resident was pushing for end-of-life care, basically. And yet, and this person actually had a public guardian who knew the person pretty well and said, well, you know, that I really have questioned that diagnosis of dementia. And if she has it, I think it's mild. And really, I think, because they saw she had a guardian, she had this diagnosis of dementia, she must be like end stage. Yeah. And so the guardian said, you know, actually, so it turns out that her granting of the guardianship was really due to some psychiatric issues, was not due to the not dementia. dementia. And the dementia, if anything, was mild. Very functional and very capable, cognitively, whatever, before she came in with her, whatever came in. However, she had pneumonia, you know, whatever. So you could worry that. But, you know, he was just ready to say, oh, no, 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 wow. <laughs> without realizing all dementia is not the same. All dementia is not the same. Mm-hmm. That's right. But, but you know... What we're talking that about here is advanced, yeah. right. advanced right. dementia where there's very little, very little recognition. Right. And I think we err on the side more of the other side rather than this one. This yeah. was an unusual one Thank where you. it was like, oh, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. And Karen, if you want.